Welcome back to season two of the Imposter Syndrome Files. My name is Kim Menninger, and I am so grateful that you're joining us. When I started this podcast last year, my primary goal was to normalize the experience of imposter syndrome, to make it easier for us to talk about, and to access the support that we deserve. I am so grateful to everyone who has shared their stories with me, and I'm fascinated by the linkages between imposter syndrome and so many other facets of our lives. The conversations that we had last season led us in so many powerful directions. I'm excited to continue these conversations in season two. As always, if you have a story to share, please reach out to me. I would love to interview you. And if I can ever support you on your own imposter syndrome journey, I'd love to connect on that too. Thanks again for being here. Welcome, Ellen. I am looking forward to this conversation and would love to start by asking you to introduce yourself. Sure. It's great to be here, Kim, and thank you for having me on and for the work you're doing. So um, I'm known as the Midlife Whisperer, and I work with busy, successful women who want to change their trajectory so that they feel joyful, confident, and also healthy on a daily basis. So I've been doing this work in a variety of different ways for almost 30 years. Um, I'm a registered dietitian. I'm a board certified health and wellness coach. I'm a PhD psychologist. I'm a mindful self-compassion teacher. So I'm excited to talk to your audience and really share some tips and techniques and new ways of being that'll really help them to overcome imposter syndrome by basically loving themselves more and developing self-confidence from a place of being more authentic and true to themselves. I absolutely love that. And I cannot wait to dive in. Uh, before we do, I just want to ask you a couple questions about imposter syndrome. Sure. And I'd love to hear what you think um, imposter syndrome means to you. And then related to that, or I guess in follow-up to that, how, if at all, has it shown up in your life or in your work? Sure. Well, that's such a great question. And, you know, I'll say it shows up all the time. <laughs> and what it really is to me, I do a lot of uh, work around something called internal family systems, which is looking at parts of yourself. And it's kind of a overall in an anxiety, a sense that I'm going to be unmasked and a, a sense that, you know, I'm not good enough. And really what that is, is it's an internal part of me that's trying to protect me from, you know, everything from shame. You're not a good person, embarrassment, shame, failure, so it's a part of me that's trying to help me. And so if people are listening, if you have it there, it's probably a part of you that developed, you know, when you were young and realized, well, if you just stay comfortable, you stay in your comfort zone, you don't like try to show up in a bigger, bolder way, you know, if you stay small, then you're not going to experience potential failure problems, you know, people, you know, looking at you sideways, feeling embarrassed. So it's a part of me that is trying to help me. But what I do is when I can understand it and, and, and really, literally, I was feeling it the other day and it was something in the pit of my stomach. I was doing some work around, it was a full moon and kind of dealing with some of my shadow side. And I was like, what is this? It's like, you know, it feels queasy almost. And I'm realizing that it was sort of old failures. I failed a lot. I've been working really hard to get to the point that I'm at. And I feel like every failure is, you know, a stepping stone on the road of success. But every time that I'm trying to move my business to a higher level. So right now I'm kind of going from a, you know, a solopreneur where I've had a very successful um, 
business coaching women one-on-one with a little group coaching to more of kind of a membership and more developing classes and working and, and expanding my offerings is kind of this piece of like, you don't deserve to be here. You can't do this. You're not, it's always, the overall is you're not good enough. And when I tell friends and family, they just kind of laugh because I have more degrees than a thermometer. (laughs) So I'd always like, when I have enough degrees, then I'll finally feel confident and good enough. And so the, you know, the issue is confidence is really the the root of that word is self-trust. So it really comes down to knowing yourself, trusting yourself, being your true self. So, you know, now when imposter syndrome shows up and it does, and if you're listening, it's actually, it's a good thing. It means that you're coming up against your edge and you're wanting to show up in a bigger, bolder way and hopefully doing more good in the world. You take a breath and it's like, okay, that's just that. It's something that's been inside of me. And I don't know if it will ever go away, but you can kind of get curious about it. And we can talk more ways and talk about ways that you can handle it in a productive way that'll help you move forward. I love that. And that very much aligns with how I see it too, is that And it has helped me tremendously to think about that as a protective mechanism. So it's not telling me the truth. It's telling me what it wants me to believe so that I will stay in my comfort zone and not venture out into the scary, dangerous uncertainty that lies ahead. So I I think that's that's a great way to think about it. And I'm really curious about your perspective on how we get curious and what bringing really in the self-compassion piece into this conversation, because I do think that's an element that's often missing. We, you know, are so busy and so focused on what's next that we don't often take a lot of time to stop and appreciate who we already are and what we're already doing. Yeah, that's such a good question. So just to talk about curiosity first, it's one of my favorite words, favorite strengths. We all have that curiosity. There's a wonderful book out called Curiosity by a man named Todd Cashton. And he talks about what you can do if you're experiencing anxiety is you can turn up the curiosity knob. So if you start to feel anxious, you create some spacious awareness and you start to ask yourself, what is this anxiety? Like I just sort of talked about my story, feeling it in your body. So naming it, you tame it. So naming, this is just anxiety. It's just part of me that's trying to protect me as, as you had just mentioned from some fear, some, some fear in my mind that I could fail, something could go wrong. Um, and so when you turn up that curiosity knob, it actually turns down the anxiety because your brain is not, you know, it isn't in two different states at the same time. So if you get curious and you kind of lean in and say, what, what is this? Why am I feeling this anxiety? What is it trying to teach me? So you feel it, you heal it, you, you name it, you tame it. So actually naming it. So using curiosity to help you get a grip on why am I feeling this imposter syndrome, this anxiety when I step outside my comfort zone or I show up in a bigger, bolder way. I love that. And I love name, you name it, you tame it. I think that's such a great way to think about that. And um, feeling it in your body because emotions are felt experiences in the body. What's so cool now is that, you know, kind of the woo and the neuroscience are catching up with each other. And we now know that when you, you know, you can feel emotions. So as I just said, this anxiety is in the pit of your stomach, or maybe your heart is closed. Your throat is tight when you want to speak your truth. When we can tune into that and do some somatic body body, mind kind of uh, 
um, techniques to relax, whether that's yoga, taking a walk, you know, taking a run, doing some journaling, we can kind of relaxing the body, whatever that is, you can feel better. So, you know, the, the neuroscience is kind of catching up with what these emotions are in your body. Just to stay on that point for a moment, because I know this is something that a lot of us struggle with. Is there anything that's like a short-term immediate strategy to help with that emotional, well, I guess you could call it the the amygdala hijacking, right? Of like, I'm in this moment, all of a sudden I find myself in fight or flight, or I just can't, I can't reason anymore. Is there, is there a go-to tip that you would offer for that? Yes. Just breathe, literally. <laughs> and again, this research we know when you breathe, take a nice uh, long inhalation, the exhalation even longer than inhalation, then be just 30 seconds. And if you're listening right now, you can just you know pause this, try it, think about something that's making you anxious and try it. What happens is you power down the um, sympathetic nervous system, that fight or flight system that is where, you know, the cortisol shitstorm is happening <laughs> and you power up the parasympathetic nervous system. So the rest and digest. So simply just breathing. And what I love to do is just take one breath and just feel your breath. Take a second breath and just be present in your body. And taking a third breath and just smiling. And even that smiling lights you up. And so what that does is you're physiologically changing your system. And, and what I said before, that also is a second technique, the name it, you tame it. So you're taking that anxiety, that fear, naming it from the amygdala into your frontal cortex. So you're powering up the frontal cortex and saying, this is just anxiety, reminding yourself I'm safe in this moment, and then feeling it, you're healing it. So just really quick techniques. And we talked about curiosity. So there are uh, four techniques right there, breathing. That's the quickest thing to go from fight and flight, the anxiety into the more calming nervous system. It really does work. It's not just me saying that there's science there. Um, naming it, you're taming it. So naming the emotion you're experiencing, feeling it in your body, and then, you know, getting curious, what is this? Maybe talking to a therapist or a coach or a friend and just like, what is this anxiety? What information is it trying to reveal to me so I can move forward in a more productive, powerful way? Oh, I love that. And I've, I've shared many times on this podcast that I am a high anxiety suffer myself. So what you're saying really resonates with me personally, and I'm sure a lot of others as well. Uh, I want to I bring in the self-compassion piece, because I think that's a really important piece of this too, is just, we are very hard on ourselves. And that might be either a way of feeling like we're motivating ourselves, keeping ourselves from negative consequences. There are all kinds of things that I think we think we're doing, that are productive, but in the end, it's just not, it's not kind <laughs> to ourselves, right? Um, how, how do we think about self-compassion in the context of confidence and imposter syndrome more specifically? Yeah, well, I think it's helpful first to think about um, what is self-compassion. And so self-compassion entails 
treating yourself the way you would a good friend. So as you just mentioned, so often, you know, we treat ourselves so harshly, right? We're critical of ourselves. So much of our own suffering is caused by our own hands. And so with self-compassion, we make sort of an intention that I'm going to treat myself the way I would a good friend. And if you're listening right now, another exercise that's awesome to do is just think about, um, a friend. Imagine you have an imaginary friend or a real friend and, and she's suffered in some way. Maybe she's struggling with imposter syndrome or she's had something happen at work or she's been in a fender bender. She has a health crisis or, you know, an issue with a partner. How do you treat her? What do you say? What do you do? You know, pre-COVID, you go over there and make her dinner <laughs> and give her a hug, right? Or even just call her now and spend time, maybe go for a distance walk. And then thinking about, um, you know, what happens when that happens to you? When you fail, when you've made a mistake, when you feel embarrassed, when you have a health crisis or, you know, have a fight with your, your partner, or have a business issue, how do you treat yourself? And I've done this exercise probably hundreds of times at this, this point. And all the time, it's always the same light bulb goes off and says, oh my God, I, I treated my friends so differently than I treat myself. So that's the first thing is noticing how do I treat my friends versus myself and how might I treat myself more like um, like a friend. And if that's hard for you just to think about, gee, how how would I um, how would a wise, caring friend treat me and sort of taking that lens and then just thinking about the three elements of self-compassion. So I was fortunate enough to um, work with Kristen Neff, who is kind of the she's really the pioneer and the mother of this whole area of self-compassion. And just as an aside, she is a super high achiever and she is just she's a um, probably a tenured professor at this point. University of Texas at Austin. She is written, I think she's got like 1.5 million views on her TED Talk, super high achieving, right? <laughs> kind of person. But um, her three elements of self-compassion are really self-kindness rather than of self-criticism. That's the first one. So we treat ourselves with kindness rather than being critical of ourselves. And there's this action element that we're being kind to ourselves. The second element is common humanity, where we, we know that everybody everybody struggles, everybody's stressed. I think right now we know that everybody's going through stuff right now. Um, and when we realize that we don't feel so alone and we realize, you know what, we all make mistakes. We all struggle. We all experience this imposter syndrome from time to time and it's okay. It's part of the human condition. And then the third element is mindfulness. So we, we notice that um, when we're stressed and struggling, so we notice when I'm experiencing imposter syndrome, instead of just plugging through and I'm going to get that PowerPoint together or I'm going to, you know, do more, I'm going to stop. I'm going to take a breath. I'm going to go do a few minutes of yoga or I'm going to take a walk outside. I'm going to go pet my dog, make a cup of tea. What do I need right now? We, we're mindful when we're stressed and, and struggling. So in terms of the, um, the imposter syndrome, when this comes up with this anxiety, this stress, this struggle comes up, rather than plugging forward, we think about how could I treat myself? If, if a friend was going through the same thing right now that I'm going through, what would I tell them? And make that our new, new modus operandi instead of the struggle. And just to, you know, as one more um, aside, um, we're, we're really, um, we lean in that self, into that self-critic because the self-critic is the internalized voice of early caregivers that um, when we're young, when we don't uh, care for when we don't um, listen to our caregivers. So when our caregivers say, do better, right? A lot of us who are high performers, right? We were told by our parents, get better grades, do more at school, clean your plate, clean your room, you know, do more, be more. 
And then we internalize that voice as adults. And that's what that self-critic is. It's the internalized voice of early caregivers. And we can unpack that as well. So a lot of the work that I do is helping high-performing women unpack the, the self-critic, unpack the people pleaser, unpack that that imposter. And so when we start to look at it and see, gee, what's it, how is it trying to help me? How can I lean into that? How do I develop that self compassionate part of myself more then we can really thrive and feel good in our skin. That's so interesting. And I'm just trying to think about this from my own personal perspective and imagine that there are others who feel this way as well. There's some, uh, I, I hear what you're saying about the internalized voice of early caregivers. I would say my mother was more on the opposite end of like, you're so wonderful. You can't do anything wrong. Right. There's just this like almost overly dramatic view of how great I was that didn't really align with reality. Um, but sometimes I feel like the critic, the inner critic in my head is designed to keep me from getting too comfortable. It's like, if I give myself too much grace or I'm kind to myself, then I won't work as hard. I won't try or challenge myself as much. It's, it's almost like somebody's just keeping me in line. I wonder if you have any thoughts on that. Sure. That's a great point. And, I'm, and it's so wonderful that you have that level of um, self-awareness around that. So we think that we need the self-critic to motivate us to do better, be more, accomplish more. And what the research truly shows is that the self-critic undermination, when we criticize ourselves, just like when someone else would criticize us, we generate cortisol. That's that hormone that I mentioned earlier of fight or flight. So we actually narrow our vision. We are less creative. We are less able to like move forward in a powerful way. So, but we think that we need it. And I see this a lot to work a lot with, you know, people who have struggled with, with eating or they're, you know, they're trying to lose weight. Um, they're trying to work on their body. And they think that they need that self-critic to go to the gym, you know, to, to eat that salad. And what ends up happening is they beat themselves up and then they find themselves stressed out, exhausted, trying to, you know, manage the stress with a glass of wine and a threesome with Ben and Jerry's later on in the evening. So it, it actually really backfires. So what a more productive um, strategy is, is to take a breath. And again, coming from that place of um, self-love and self-compassion of how would accomplishing more help me to live my best life and have a beautiful life that I love that really feeds my soul and be moving from that place of, I want to be more and accomplish more because I want to create a life that I love. And I also want to have a bigger impact on, on society. Is that helpful to think about the self-critic as being counterproductive? Absolutely. And you're really making me realize how much mindfulness plays into this as well, because I do think that so much of that self-critic is subconscious or we we aren't really noticing it and its effects in the moment we're just sort of accepting it as reality in many ways and so to, to not only catch ourselves doing it but then create space to think about it differently yeah, that's really important. And I think that the first point you, you said is catching yourself doing it, just like we talked before about that anxiety. When you notice that that's that self-critic and, and when I'm working with people, 
we feel it in the body. Like we're like for you, Kim, where does your self-critic show up? Is it like a tightness in your throat? A lot of times people have it like a heaviness in your shoulders or an edginess in your stomach. Where does it show up physically for you? Yeah, I would say there's a tightness in my chest a lot that I feel. Um, I, I can, I can all of, almost imagine it now. Like just, it kind of rises from my stomach and gets stuck in my chest. Yeah. So right now, if you want, and if you're list, really, your uh, listeners are, are listening right now, you just, just put your heart, your heart, your hand on your heart and just saying to yourself, this is a moment of suffering. That's that mindfulness. This, this sucks. This hurts. This is suffering. This is stress. So that's the again, mindfulness. And suffering is just part of life. This is just part of me that is being activated. It's trying to motivate me to go forward. So it's just part of life. That's that common humanity. And then ask yourself, what is it that I truly need? Or what is this trying to, how is it trying to help me? And what would truly help me now? And it's kind of like we're, you know, we have the, um, these brain um, loops that are automatic, just neuroscience. So, so we have loops that we've been looping for, for almost, you know, could be decades and saying, you know, I want to change this. What would it look like right now if I was motivating myself from self-love or self-compassion rather than the self-criticism? So feeling it in your body, naming it, becoming aware of it, and then just questioning, gee, what would it look like if, if my true belief was instead of I need self-criticism to motivate me is I need self-compassion to motivate me or I want self-compassion. So changing your story changing your thinking and saying, I want to be motivated by well-being. And then that's going to change your emotional response. And that's going to change your habits and your actions and change what you're vibing with. So that eventually and you're talking to somebody who is super critical. I mean, self-loathing, self-criticism was my complete modus operandi. I was a, in my forties, I was a personal fitness trainer and it was just be like, you got to work harder. You got to do more. I was working out four to six hours a day, beating myself up, never being good mm -hmm. enough, destroying myself. And now I work way less, have a lot more fun and accomplish a ton more. Wow. I wonder what is it practically, and I know it will differ from person to person, but what you're describing seems like in the beginning will take some time to just reflect and, and really connect with a lot of this internal need that we're talking about, right? What, what does that practically look like? Do, do you recommend that people take some time to think about this proactively before the moment arises? Like, what are some of the things that we could be doing to prepare for when that moment happens to respond differently? Yeah, I, that's a really great question. I mean, I think that you can do some work on it before it arises. I think so. The, the answer is really doing it proactively and also then noticing in the moment when it arises. And this is where, you know, good coaching can really come in. Someone who can help you to activate those parts of yourself that are no longer being, you know, productive. But when let's just like I did with you, imagining a time in your life where, you know, your anxiety um, gets triggered, where your self-critic gets triggered, where your people pleaser or your imposter syndrome gets critic. So imagine a time, you know, that you've been in a work situation and your, your imposter syndrome's gotten triggered. And then just your brain doesn't know the difference between it happening in the moment and it happening in your imagination. So that'll trigger that physiological response. So naming it, noticing it, feeling it in your body, and then asking, gee, what, what, how is this trying to help me, this part of myself? Maybe doing some journaling if that works for you. 
Um, again, talking to a therapist or a friend, um, and then, you know, getting some insight about it, asking this part of you, um, how is it really trying to help me? And noticing, I think it's it's hard in our society. We're not taught how to deal with difficult emotions. When difficult emotions arise, we're taught to engage in dysfunctional behavior. So eat, drink, um, you know, mm-hmm. uh, shopping, Netflix, mm-hmm. just because I don't want to feel this. So rather than I don't want to feel this, and particularly for me, I work with a lot of people around the emotional eating piece or having that extra glass of wine because I don't want to feel this. Rather than leaning into the wine or, you know, into that third helping that's kind of numbing the pain, you sit with it and you're like, what is this? And what is it that I truly need to feel better? Trying to figure out, um, you know, what's sort of triggering this and then unraveling that so that when you're in the moment of the stress, anxiety, you know, people please or self-critic coming up, you can kind of play with it and, and get curious. That thing we talked about initially, getting curious, what is this? What could I be doing differently? So there's there's a ton of techniques, but I think it all comes down with self-awareness and having the courage to deal with some difficult emotions. And I don't call them negative emotions because there's wisdom there. Having the courage to deal with that and say, gee, rather than going into the same old habits that lead to the same old behaviors that aren't serving me, what could I do differently in this moment? Well, and I, what I like fundamentally too, is that in some ways we're operating, if, if we take, if we follow the approach that, that you're laying out here, we're operating on the assumption that our responses are inevitably designed to help us in some way, even if they don't come across that way, even if they're harsh and mean and show up as this self-critic, And so to to recognize that any reaction that we have is really designed to serve us in some way and then to be able to, from there, ask, is it having the desired effect, right? Or is there another way to achieve that goal? Yeah. And I think maybe it's, you know, setting that intention to treat yourself with compassion, no idea what that looks like just to, yeah, thinking about it or setting the attention that I want to do things differently. Yeah. It is so interesting how fairly universally, I know there are people who have worked on this and that don't do this, but how universal really it is that we treat ourselves so differently than we treat the people we love or the, the people uh, that we see as trusted friends, right? Uh, it, there's such a disconnect there. It's just fascinating. It is. And it's interesting when you, you know, you, I remember I've, I've read uh, um, stories about the Dalai Lama and they're trying to explain showing about the level of um, self-loathing. Like he didn't understand what that was because, <laughs> you know, it, where he's coming from in terms of just how precious life is and how beautiful life is. It doesn't, it, it doesn't exist in his culture. And I think stepping back and seeing how wonderful you are, and how wonderful life is, and then just realizing how much suffering your self-critic is causing. I think that's the first step. And sometimes I've worked with people with eating disorders who don't want to let go of their self-critic because they need that self-critic. So they're, they're scared of that self-compassion piece. But to getting curious about what would my life look like if I truly loved and cared about myself? And what we're talking about now sounds like a pretty active process of the mindfulness piece is important to it and really actively thinking about how we're talking to ourselves and what a more potentially more effective way to do that might look like. 
does this become more natural over time? Do you find that once you do it for a while, it just the self-critic becomes less vocal and the self-kindness rises to the top? Yes, absolutely. Yes. No, I've been practicing. I was really fortunate to um, fall into self-compassion. You know, I think it was probably, I was just like on the cusp of 50 and I was, you know, looking for a dissertation topic and I had been studying all of these women's magazines, the ones that say, you know, lose 20 pounds in two minutes by eating chocolate (laughs) and have these really restrictive diets inside and these, these recipes for these cakes, this idea that, um, you could you could uh, lose weight so easily. And I wanted to help women on a deep level. And so my dissertation chair was like, you should teach meditation. And I found I was looking for a kind of um, resource that would really help. And I was fortunate enough to connect with Kristen Neff. And, I, and, and she was like, yeah, I'll be on your dissertation committee, but you have to practice self-compassion. So I had to take the self-compassion training with her and practice. And then I went on to become a mindful self-compassion teacher. And I have to say, the um, Ellen Albertson of, you know, a decade ago is not the person I am now. I had such a fierce self-critic. I was always, you know, I had more degrees. I still do have more degrees than a thermometer, but I thought when I get that PhD, when I drive myself harder, when I weigh less, when I eat, when I'm perfect, then I'll be happy. And so now what I start with with my clients is let's start with loving yourself and being happy now. Yes. And it does. And and the the thing that I love about self-compassion is when women think about it, well, how do you do the self-love thing? Like they don't know where to start. Self-compassion is an actual step-by-step workbook. It's it's an actually, we teach an eight-week course and I incorporate self-compassion in all the work that I do, teach people practices that really do work that are scientifically proven to make that switch from self-loathing to self-love. And so, yes, it absolutely. And what was so fascinating about my research is that what I did, my research is I took, I I, um, recruited 500 women and half of them were the controls so they didn't get an intervention and half of them listened to self-compassion podcasts, um, mindfulness meditations, mindful self-compassion meditations for just three weeks for an hour on average. And self-compassion went up, body shame went down, body dissatisfaction went down, self-worth based on appearance went down and body appreciation went up significantly compared to the controls in just three weeks. So three hours over the course of three weeks. So to answer your question, a little long-winded, from my personal experience from the research, and the research really shows that the self-compassion program, not only does it improve, you know, your sense of self-worth, your um, your appreciation of life, your well-being, your optimism, but it decreases significantly stress, depression, and anxiety. So it really is a, is a one- one practice does it all. It's super powerful. Wow. That's amazing. And I'm curious because we've, we've been having such a great conversation about what to do and how to do it and everything. And I wonder if we could, as we're wrapping up here, just boil it down. To, what's the first step? What's the very first thing that someone can think about doing if they want to move in this direction? Yeah. The first step is set an intention to treat yourself with more compassion, compassion, self-compassion is all about that intention. When you do something, when you even just get up from your desk, because you start to notice that you're feeling stiff and sore and walk around the room with the intention to alleviate your suffering. It's an act of self-compassion. When you say, you know what, I'm going to 
fill up my water bottle and leave it by my desk and make sure I drink it every hour and remind myself to do that. It's an act of self-compassion. When you just put your hand on your heart and just notice, I'm not feeling anxious right now. I'm going to just do a little breathing. So it's just setting an intention to treat yourself with more compassion. It's the first act. I love that. Wow, this has been so amazing, Ellen. Thank you so much. I want to ask you a couple of questions as we wrap up today. Number one is what motivated you to want to be here today and and tell your story? And number two, what are you hoping people will take away from it? What motivated me, um, Kim, is just you have such a great platform. Imposter syndrome causes so much suffering and keeps women from being their true selves. It's a, it's a really widespread problem. Um, and I've really noticed it in myself and in my clients. So I just really um, wanted to have a uh, opportunity to have an impact. If even one person is like listening and is feeling better uh, from this, um, it really means a lot to me. And I think just to quote, you know, Miriam Williamson, that really famous quote is, our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness that mm-hmm. most frightens us. You know, love is where we were born, what we were born with. Fear is what we've learned. Joy is what happens to us when we allow ourselves to recognize how good things really are. That, you know, even with all the craziness, it's still an amazing world. And we are, you know, everybody listening, we're all amazing. Like if you think about everything that had to happen for you to be here, I, I think I read once, it's like, you know, the chances of you being here are like one in, I don't know, several trillion, but wow, it's, it's powerful. And you have to, what was the second part of your question? I'm sorry, because I was so mindful and in the moment that I forgot. Oh, no. <laughs> Just what are you hoping people will take away from it? And I know you have a, a free gift as well to share. Yeah. Yeah. I guess what I'm hoping people take away is just hopefully you've gotten a couple of techniques and tools that you can use and that you will use them um, to know that you are not alone, that imposter syndrome is a, is a really widespread problem. I know I wrote about imposter syndrome a while ago and my mother called me and she's like, oh my God, I've had this my whole life. I never knew there was a word for it. So, um, and that there is help. So, you know, Kim, you're here to help women in business to show up in a bigger, bolder way in their lives. I'm certainly here if you resonated with my work and feel like um, I could help you, whether you want to work with me one-on-one in groups or just, you know, be part of my tribe of women who are wanting to love themselves to health. Um, I hope that you'll connect with me. And so there's a variety of ways you can connect with me. You can just Google Dr. Ellen Albertson or the Midlife Whisperer. I will pop up. Um, I'm on Facebook at Dr. Ellen Albertson, as well as uh, Dr. Ellen's Mastermind, where I provide lots of tips and techniques. And I have a free gift, which uh, will hopefully be in the show notes. It's just called um, Love Yourself to Health. Basically, a simple guide for being a radiant well-being. And it gives you a basic first blueprint to how to love yourself. And that self-compassion piece is really the the how of self-love. And then also some tips on how to take better care of your health. And it it doesn't need to be hard. I started out, you know, as a registered dietitian 27 years ago with this idea that self-change was really hard and it was about sacrifice. And now I'm like, it's really, it's it's easy. I eat mostly plant-based 
whole foods, vegan. I'm not a thousand percent, but that's the way I like to eat. And I feel like it's a joy to take care of your body. It doesn't have to be this thing where you are having soul crushing workouts and starving yourself and feeling guilty because you're putting yourself first or feeling guilty if you have a piece of chocolate. There's an easier way to go about your life. And I think that's something that because of the current um, situation in the world is we need to lean into more ease and we need to lean into that self-love so that we were reflecting that to our friends, our family, our business associates. And I think that's really where the change in the world needs to, ha to happen right now, not from more heaviness and hardship and anger and self-loathing, but from a lighter, easier way of being. Oh, I love it, Ellen. This has been so powerful. And I know that it's certainly helped me. I'm sure it's helping many others as well. So thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. It's been a joy to share with you and thank you for the work that you're doing. Thanks again for listening today. If you're struggling with imposter syndrome and you'd like additional support, check out the show notes for more resources or contact me directly. I would love to help you. And if you'd like to tell your story, I would love to interview you. You will find my contact info in the show notes. So reach out anytime. Thanks again.